This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Property Show on The Morning Run and I'm Philip C. On today's Property Show, we are in conversation with Darian Bradshaw, Executive Director of One Global Australia. As Malaysians celebrate the reopening of international borders, we turn our attention to overseas property investments and no other place than Australia. Darian, there are so many Malaysians itching to go down to Australia as well as many have actually migrated and moved to Australia. And they could perhaps explain explain Malaysia's, you know, love for Australian properties. Can you give us a sense of how big uh, the appetite is for Malaysians in Australian properties? Yeah, sure. So I was fortunate enough just to get down to um, Melbourne and Brisbane. So I've managed to get a VTL flight, which obviously all all your listeners will be able to take advantage of. Uh, And the the one thing, and it was the first time I had done a trip in two years, and the first thing that I noticed when I got on the plane was the flight was full which obviously is fantastic for everybody. So the airlines are obviously a key part of, of this in terms of uh, getting people backwards and forwards. So the flight was full and it was full with foreign students. So these obviously were Singaporean students because I was flying um, from Singapore. And, and, and really what we're seeing at the moment is that the Australian government is, is really moving really quickly and proactively to get the foreign students back. Um, at any given point in time, there's over 100,000 uh, new students coming into the country. Um, and and I think there's been somewhere around that a number of visas which have been issued just over the last six months for, for foreign students to return. So that's that's really significant. Uh, and I think just the final figure, Philip, which you know I think we touched on beforehand, is that an interesting fact is that the Malaysian Malaysian um, Malaysians make up 0.7 percent of the Australian population at around 777,000 people. So these linkages are very deep and long-rooted. I, I, I have many friends of mine who actually moved to Australia and now actually live in Australia. And as you rightly point out, the, the flights are chock-a-block full of uh, students. And I'm sure what you saw in Singapore is definitely going to be repeated in Malaysia. So can you just help for us, you know, travellers who are thinking of investing in Australian properties now? How different is it versus where it was pre-pandemic? You know, how has the Australian property market changed? Or has it not changed at all before the pandemic? Yes, look, it's been a very interesting period. Look, the markets were all pretty strong um, and and just sort of in a little bit of a recovery. You know, each city is, is very different. But generically, what I would say is as we went into the pandemic, which obviously is very fresh and probably easy to talk about, the expectation of all the major real estate forecasters um, was really that we would see a very subdued period in terms of growth, in terms of prices. Um, and so the opposite of that happened. Yeah, you know, far from far from that, isn't it? <laughs> far from yeah, subdued. Exactly. So it was it was it was the complete opposite. And I think really um, some of the key reasons, the fundamentals were already there in terms of low interest rates, unemployment. Uh, sorry, unemployment is at record lows at under four percent in Australia. So if you want a job in Australia, you can get a job. Um, the, the only the only area that we saw a decrease in the population was really with foreign foreign students um, and and some countries like Singapore. You know they sort of they wanted some citizens to come back because everyone was really uncertain about what what the situation yeah. would unfold. But then you ended up in a situation where people are working from home because of lockdowns. Like Melbourne, for example, I think had over 180 day, days of lockdown where people were only able to go out for essential you know groceries. 
uh, and to exercise once a day. But you, you suddenly had a, uh, a detachment of people um, living in their houses having to go to the office and you had a detachment of students, like just at a local level, um, not like in just talking about Melbourne, um, going to school. So suddenly you've got people at home um, who obviously want to be in the office or they want to be at school having to conduct their business and all their daily activities from home. So you take all of that commute period, et cetera, et cetera, and you've got a lot of time on your hands. So if you're sitting at home and you're looking around the house and you're thinking about how your house functions because you've suddenly got everyone at home at once, yeah. probably one of the first things people realise is they need more space and mm. or if they haven't renovated their house, um, probably now is a good time to look at making some changes. So you're saying essentially the pandemic has catalyzed or even kickstarted this whole uh, shift and mobilization of property transactions because as people either move up or move down the ladder based on their circumstances. But generally what you're also saying is that the Australian economy seems so robust and I can see that in the numbers, right? 24% increase in prices for Australian property prices, right, over the past one to two years. Can you perhaps pass out where where has it been most buoyant and where has it been relatively subdued? Sure, Philip. So re- really the most, well, let's start with the, the most subdued areas because that's where we're seeing the biggest pickup right now. The most uh, subdued areas or ground zero for the worst forming locations have been inner city apartments um, because inner city apartments are generally where in a normal market people are living because they're working next to their office. Or if you look in the context, say, of your Malaysian listeners, what we've found has been a huge character of, of Malaysian and foreign uh, people migrating to Australia or going to universities. They want to be next to major universities yeah. or infrastructure projects or employment for when they're not actually studying. And that tends to be within five kilometres of, of major cities or near major universities. So clearly there was a huge exodus of foreign students plus local students because they're at home. So any, any requirement for people to be in and around major employment hubs or universities that just went out the door. So the worst for performing areas in that respect were major capital cities, and it's across all major Australian capital cities, so any, anywhere with the climate of the city. What actually then happened was you've got mainly owner-occupiers, the investor market went out the door. People are nervous about investment, and the banks as well who provided the mortgages probably nervous. So that 24% increase that you're talking about in capital values was all about people living in their houses uh, and spending more money on their houses, moving up the property chain in the suburbs of major capital cities. But two, very interestingly what it did is it really kick-started massive growth in regional centres because people again as I mentioned became detached from their offices and, and like they were in the UK and the US suddenly they're thinking okay well I love living down the coast or in the mountains or wherever wherever is someone's dream place and so those people then moved and possibly rented initially and then started buying and so although 24% sounds high in fact there's regional centres outside of Sydney Melbourne Brisbane and Perth the prices went up by 50 to wow. 100% Mm. So very, very significant increases in values over a very short period of time. But this is where you made a very interesting point that many Malaysian investors prior to the pandemic were very much focused on the inner city. So when we hear these numbers of 24%, perhaps that doesn't reflect their own personal experience and perhaps many feel burnt by the original investments they had in Australia because of their original focus in the inner cities. You know, what's your counsel and advice to those that are holding properties and seeing a bit of depression there? Firstly, 
essentially what I would say is that the place that you want to be investing is where there's probably been the least amount of capital appreciation and where you've seen the, the biggest increase in terms of people movement. So all the statistics which are coming to us from the government right now are basically indicating, uh, and there's a group which is very good called Core Logic in Australia which tracks this, and the Australian government, one of the really good things that they do is they have a centralised uh, land registry. So all property transactions attract both rentals and real estate um, sales. And what they're telling us right now is, for example, come back to Melbourne, because it's a classic example where most foreign students um, are likely to go, um, is that we're seeing vacancies going down uh, in terms of um, properties on the market, so apartments in the inner city from around 13 or 14% to under 5% in less than six months. So that's really significant. The second thing that we're finding is we have what we call, I love this thing called the property clock, and there's a few groups in Australia who, who track that very closely. And off the back of vacancies going down, and it's just not Melbourne, it's all major capital cities, is obviously then the yields go up and then, you know, obviously sales activity starts to happen because vacancies going down is a leading indicator of sales interest. So with foreign students coming back and the Australian government having a target of 250,000 foreign immigrants to Australia per annum, in line with 1.5% to 2%, which is what the Australian government's target is for, for growth. So 50% is made up of local in, uh, population growth and 50% from overseas. And a requirement for people to be working back in the office, foreign students coming back is that um, if you go to any of the display homes or any of the major apartment complexes which have been finished over the last, say, two to five years, um, where there's surplus supply sitting there, is that we're seeing very strong um, sales activity right now. So give me a sense, you know, because prior to the pandemic, even in December 2015, there were some restrictions imposed to foreign investors, right, for Australian properties. I believe that non-resident buyers can only invest in new dwellings of the planned properties under construction or vacant has that changed or is is that restriction still in place or is it or are there any plans to relax it or even tighten it? So nothing has changed uh, in terms of if you don't have Australian residency, you cannot buy a property that has been transacted for. So you're limited to the primary market, which is obviously apartments and townhouses or house and land. And Malaysians like all three categories. So it really then comes down to the individual's preferences. Mm. So it's, 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 you know, say for example, we have um, investors who come to us and say, listen, we just want to spend $500,000 and buy a house and land to rent out, which might be 15 to 30 kilometres out of the major CBD, there's that market and you probably have a reasonable rental, but your capital upside might be limited because it might be not a high population because you're not necessarily in a high density location. In, in the city, really what we're finding is, which is where the investment demand is, governments have, have done what they can to try and improve conditions for both local and foreign buyers. So in Melbourne, for example, if you buy a property right now, you don't pay any local stamp duty until June, June 30. So the government bought in a, uh, some incentives to try and to stimulate the economy. So the first thing they did is if you're a local in Melbourne, you don't have to pay your, say, 5% on average stamp duty for a property. But one thing that did change about four or five years ago is the government did impose an 8% foreign stamp duty, and that 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 is there to stay. It's, it's slightly 7, 7 or 8% depending on the state, but it's mm. around 8%. So I'm not sure whether there's been any changes to stamp duty in, in Malaysia, Philip, recently, but certainly, you know, as part of the pandemic, unfortunately, quite a few countries have have increased significantly stamp duty. So in Singapore now, if you buy a second property, it's 20% then sort of 30% yeah. roughly the stamp duty you pay. And in Hong Kong, it's 30%. Um, and there's also, for your listeners who might also buy into the UK, there's also a, a foreign stamp duty which has which come in. So generally speaking, that isn't what investors like, but that's not going anywhere. It's been in four or five years. But despite that, we are seeing a strong uptake in terms of foreign buying and rental activity with people coming back to Australia. 
Can I build on that point you made that there are some subtle differences between the states of Australia, isn't it? Some are more welcoming, some are perhaps status quo. Can you perhaps give us a sense of, you know, which states in Australia are a bit more welcoming or have in place some incentives to attract foreign property investments? Well, some of it actually comes down to the prices. So if you looked at Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane 10, 15 years ago, the prices were all on parity. But what's really happened over the last 10 years and and some of this comes down to supply. But Sydney now is the most expensive city in Australia and costs you three times, say, for a house or an apartment that you would spend in Brisbane and probably double to at least a third more than Melbourne. So firstly, affordability is a big driver. So if your Malaysian audience is thinking about where to invest, affordability, I think, is, is a really big thing. In terms of incentives, the, the, Mel- the Victorian government has been very big on incentives, as has the Western Australian government, uh, in terms of having stamp duty holidays and, mm. and really, need to examine that more close in advice. But the big one, the big change happening right now, though, if you do have listeners, is that the stamp duty saving of, say, 4 or 5% that is there in Melbourne for the local stamp duty expires on 30 June. And we are seeing right now, as people understand that, and as your listeners may be moving to places like Melbourne, that if they really were thinking about getting that saving, that, you know, the, the, the clock is ticking. And I don't believe that there's any intention that that would be extended. On today's property show, Darian Bradshaw, Executive Director of One Global Australia on investing in property in Australia. We will be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Darian Bradshaw, Executive Director of One Global Australia, as he helps us navigate through overseas property investments in Australia. Now, Darian, we early on talked about the property market in general in Australia, how the pandemic has really positively impacted the property prices substantially in Australia. But can we just go back to the root cause of the Malaysian property investor prior to the pandemic? They are quite similar in their approaches, isn't it? They were very much focused on coming here, setting roots and even investing in education. And many people bought properties in Australia because of their children pursuing their further studies there. Is that correct? You're spot on. You know, I think, again, the common theme to most foreign investment into Australia starts with education. And the Australian government's hugest motivation is once those students are in Australia, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of intellects who finish their study, but the Australian government, for their own selfish purposes, don't want those people going back to Malaysia. <laughs> but what they would really like is they set up a visa process that once once you've been educated and, and obviously you graduate from universities, one, obviously the students enjoyed the experience. They've got Malaysian friends who travel with them initially to Australia, who obviously they're very close with. Plus, they've, they've gone out there and they've they've created new friends which are in Australia and employment, etc. So, the, the best case scenario for the Australian government is, you know, they, they want 250,000 new people to migrate to Australia most years. Is those those kids who are going down and getting studying in Australia is, I'm not saying for mum and dad to say wave goodbye, but that's what the Australian government would yeah. certainly like. And in fact, what they'd like in addition to that is for their parents to travel and live in Australia as well. A very open country like that. And so shifting from the whole logic of education as the initial basis, then perhaps the lens then shifts to something clearly classic for pure return on investment. Where are the opportunities now that are interesting that perhaps are not so tuned in to education for property investments in Australia? Well, listen, I, I mean, probably what I would say to you is I, I wear two hats. I run a, we have a, a desk, which is a private office where we're concentrating on high net worth from overseas, investing to all sorts of different categories 
like the ones that you've mentioned. I, I think at a most simplistic level, we, we see most of the interest in apartments because it's, it's, very, sim- it's very simple and it's very road tested and the land registry system, et cetera, works really well versus, say, if you're moving into industrial, commercial or retail spaces where quite often you need to be very hands-on just to make sure that, you know, the tenant equation can be a little bit more challenging. Mm. Uh, the, also, the other thing I would say about other sectors of the market is you need to know them really well. But what, what's, what's been happening is that we've found yields have gone down significantly. For, like, for example, commercial, where there's, you know, obviously we've been through COVID and, you know, even the major commercial landowners, you know, have seen deflection in terms of their yields because we're uncertain about when everyone will be back in the office. It is just a little bit, it's a little bit more challenging. The areas that I like or the cities that I like right now, probably I'd highlight firstly, Sydney, which Malaysians have loved. The issue right now is that prices have gone up by so much that really from the affordability side, it's very hard to get into that market and there's very limited opportunities other than small boutique developments. Um, so I, I think Sydney very challenging right now. And, and as a result, at a local level, because prices have gone up by so much, the market's a little bit soft. I think Melbourne inner city uh, versus the suburbs. So the suburbs have formed very strongly during COVID, but I think there has been a glut of inner city apartments and we are seeing anecdotal evidence of a recovery in the Melbourne inner city apartments. And, you know, for five $600,000, you can buy a fantastic apartment from someone, someone like World Class Global, OSK, who obviously is a very large um, Malaysian group, and they've got an amazing project called Melbourne Square with more apartments coming online. They're having a very good experience right now in terms of take-up of, of residual apartments that they have. And then we've got another big client, Far East Consortium, who have a project called Westside Place, which is four towers, which includes a Ritz-Carlton in Spencer Street, 250 Spencer Street in the city, where at the price points that I mentioned, you can have panoramic views, mm. so the portability element is there over, over the Docklands. Far East Consortium also have another really interesting project which um, they've launched in Brisbane and so Brisbane Brisbane as I mentioned earlier is about a third of the price of Sydney so the South so federal and state government of Queensland announced a huge infrastructure project which is going to be going for 20-30 years where they're going to be piling billions of dollars into southeast Queensland because in Australia the population growth is really all going to at a local level is all going to, towards Queensland so that's between the Sunshine Coast and all the way down to the Gold Coast so Brisbane is right in the middle of that and Far East Consortium have the equivalent of the Marina Bay Sands uh, and Marina Bay Sands precinct being built on 1.2 kilometres of, of waterfront in the city. So- you made a very interesting point as well that a lot of the investors are actually uh, occupants. And that kind of gets me thinking whether or not uh, the interest in overseas investors has evolved a lot. Prior to the pandemic, one assumes that markets like China and Japan were very much highly sought after. Has that shifted or changed as a result of this pandemic? As Australian borders have reopened already, are you seeing different forms or different sources of overseas investors coming in now? I think what's really changed is if you look at politically politically how how each country has actually been dealt with by the individual governments. So, so in the past, if we had a project like this far is Consortium's Queen's Wharf, which is, it just ticks every single box. Owner occupies in Brisbane and overseas buyers. But the problem with the overseas buyers is some still have very strong restrictions in terms of what they can do. So for example, Hong Kong, Paris Consortium, as an example, uh, they're a Hong Kong developer. As we know, Hong Kong are looking at still at a 0% yeah. in terms of COVID-19. And, you know, I feel really sorry for my friends who are in Hong Kong, many of which have left because, you know, they've, if they've got families, they've been sitting at home. And as they have in all the major Chinese cities, and it's not 
not it's not for me to, to to judge how they're dealing with it, but what it means from an investment perspective, where Malaysia and, for example, Singapore and in, even Indonesia now are getting the benefit is they're opening up their borders. So potential investors into Australia are, are probably, if, you, if I'm Far East, spending money on overseas investment demand, probably you concentrate on where you know that there's free flow of travel. And I think if you're in Hong Kong or China at the moment, you've probably got other things on your mind, maybe then investing, although, you know, one of the strongest areas of investment interest that we have seen from, say, people in, in Hong Kong is is moving the families overseas, you know, to occupy versus investors. So we're not necessarily saying that if we're, if we're marketing a project from Australia to Malaysia, for example, that we're just looking for owner-occupiers or investors. It's a pretty open market. But one thing we have seen from a place like Hong Kong is the investment levels are down because people are just concerned about what are they going to be doing tomorrow, where are they going to be living. But if they are looking at buying, they're very much more concentrated on that owner-occupier site versus, say, Malaysia, Indonesia and Singapore. You know, we've been talking quite a lot about the opportunities predominantly on the East Coast, you know, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. You know, Malaysians love their Perth. Um, what's yeah. happening in Perth? Look, Perth has been a, a very strong performer. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought it up. You know, the new, so so one of the, the, the big things is constrained new supply into the market and, and Perth, that, that's very obvious because what's happened in Australia is construction costs, like many major capital cities, gone up by somewhere between 15 to 30%. And Perth, unfortunately, has bore, bore the brunt of that. So vacancy, so Perth's had a really tough time over the last five years. Unfortunately, it's come out during COVID. There's been very limited new supply and the supply which was in the market and completed has been taken up. And then on the, the new supply side, there's very new developer start. So if you're an investor coming in to look Perth um, from Malaysia, clearly there's outstanding universities and there's a lot of money going from the Western Australian government into those universities. And some of those campuses are actually being moved into the city. So you whetted my appetite. I'm keen. <laughs> give me give me some, you know, ground zero advice then. Where do I get the insights and informations to make that first step in investing yeah. in Australia as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, my, my, my advice would be to make sure that you share the details with One Global Property <laughs> As, as the team that we've, we've built under One Global Australia, we've, we've sold over a billion dollars of real estate um, over the last 15, 20 years. And, you know, I've been involved in this area for 10, 15 years. And the most important thing is that you're working with with, a, with an agent or a real estate professional who understands the market. And, you know, there's a checklist I have of 10 different things that every buyer should consider before they make that first investment. And, you know, that ranges from track record, making sure you've, of the developer you, you're buying with, track record of the real estate agent you're dealing with, studying all the different market reports that you can on the market where you're possibly thinking about investing. They're, they're very critical things. Making sure there is a rental market, making sure you have a solicitor who can help you, making sure there's a property manager who can, can assist you and, and finally the tax. One of, one of the big things that we haven't touched on is if, if you go and buy in Australia, there's outstanding accountants who are going to help you you buying as an investor, hmm. um, reduce your costs significantly so that when you sell your property and you obviously want to buy a property that's going up in value and you want to buy the right properties, which is where we can assist, you, you possibly don't have to pay any capital gains tax in the future. That's the way the Australian, that's the way the Australian tax system is set up around property and where we have found a lot of interest, you know, from multiple countries into Australia. It's 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 called negative gearing. And that, that is one of the number one attributes that you have, which is rare to Australian property, which your Malaysian audience should be aware of. Perhaps we need to do another show on Australian property taxes, but that's all the time we have for today's property show. You know, thank you for being on the show, Darian. I've been speaking to Darian Bradshaw, Executive Director of One Global Australia over property investments in Australia as a result of the pandemic. I'm Philip C. signing off for The Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. 
The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.